welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For a couple of years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly video series. With the new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the data and really have a discussion about what's happening in the market from the leaders and the people who are in there every day. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, and we analyze all that data and make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. Uh, people desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now, why it's been so hot, so competitive, and now suddenly the, the landscape is changing. So when people ask me, Mike, can I get the data for my local market? The answer is yes. Visit altosresearch.com for a free consultation on how you can use market data in your business. But enough about Altos. Without further ado, I'm thrilled to introduce my guest today, Wendy Forsythe. Wendy is the Chief Strategy Officer at Fathom Realty. She has more than two decades of experience building successful real estate networks in the U.S. and Canada, and has led the expansion of national brands like Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, HomeSmart International. She's a frequent speaker and writer in many industry publications and conferences. She was named one of the most influential women in business in Arizona by the Arizona Business in 2018. Wendy's also an accomplished athlete, holding several marathon finishes, as well as the coveted Ironman. Wendy, welcome to Top of Mind. Let's start here. So for our, our listeners who don't know Fathom, mm -hmm. Fathom's a fast-growing brokerage. And why don't you give a background about Fathom and why it's cool and what you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So Fathom Realty was actually just named this month as the 10th largest real estate brokerage in the country by transaction sides for 2021. So we're pretty excited about that. Fathom Realty is actually part of Fathom Holdings. So Fathom Holdings is a publicly traded company, and we have a number of brands under our holdings umbrella, including Fathom Realty, the real estate brokerage. We have a mortgage uh, company, title company, insurance company, and technology companies. So our mission and vision is really to provide a end-to-end -end seamless transaction for consumers and then also for our primary customers, which are our agents, loan officers, title reps. Nice. 10th largest. So growing fast. Growing very fast. We're just, we're about 12 years old. So the company was founded by a gentleman named Josh Harley, who, you know, grew up in sort of the technology business, sold a, uh, a technology lead gen business, got into real estate and kind of brought that background into real estate, uh, was a team leader, and then decided to start his own brokerage. And I started the business around the 2010 uh, timeframe. Wow. Yeah. And so I love to have um, people like you running 
fast-growing brokerages on the podcast because you know we spend all this time talking about the data and where the things are moving. And so I really am interested today in talking about like what you're seeing and anecdotes or like the things that people are doing well, you know, so, so tell me, let's do a little bit more on Fathom. What's where, like mostly South, South and Southeast, is that where you're focused? So just over 8,000 agents, 36 states and counting. Biggest footprint though would be in Texas. And that's where we were founded. We started in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. So the Texas market, the North Carolina market, Virginia are, are three of our big market areas. Got it. Texas, North Carolina, Virginia. Okay. That, I mean, big, big, fast growing states, a nice place to be. Yeah. Actually, I should mention Idaho. Uh, we just um, purchased a, a large company there. So big, footprint in Idaho. And just last month, we um, did an acquisition in Utah that added over 400 agents to our network. Wow. Okay. I probably undersold that footprint a little bit. That's that's great. So Utah, Idaho, so but also other fast growing markets, you can understand why the expansion there is is intended. So so let's so talk to me about like what's happening in the market, what what you're seeing, what your agents are seeing, what's going on right now. Like we're in this, it's early April. Yeah. Market's been nuts on fire, yes. but we've got interest rates spiking. We've got inflation. What the heck's happening out there? What do you see? So you use the word nuts. I was, you know, my internal voice was like the market's bananas because it, it is bananas. So I guess there's a lot of perspectives to come at this answer from. Let me start with, I see a big disconnect between, let's call them the theorists of the market, maybe like yourself, who are studying the numbers, are looking at sort of those leading indicators. What could this mean? What does inflation mean? What does rising interest rates mean? What do all of those things mean? So you have sort of that level, which, you know, the, the, there's concern about the market, right? At those sort of macro levels. Then you go down to sort of boots on the ground level. And our agents are dealing with multiple offers. They're dealing with way more buyers than they have sellers in a market. They're tired because they've been dealing with this now for you know a couple years. And they just want more inventory. They just want to find their buyers a property that they can get an offer on and get it accepted and get it closed. And when they hear the talk of inflation and rising rates and war and I mean all these other things, it's not their day to day when they get up in the morning and they've got the buyer that has offered on 10 different houses and hasn't gotten an accepted offer on one of them and is frustrated and is sad and is discouraged and is pouring all of that into the agent saying, why can't you get me the house? So there's a big, there's just a different experience out there, depending on what your day-to-day -day involvement in our industry is. 
Yeah, and that's really, I mean, that's why we uh, love to have people like you uh, on, on the podcast, right? Because, you know, we we know what's going on and we can see that demand is still off the charts. And like we do our, we we do the, the number we track, it, it, we call it the immediate sales tracker, which, and these are the ones that are getting listed and taking offers in like hours or maybe a couple of days. And they're essentially bypassing the active market altogether. They're already pending before you know it. And so like, it's like a third of the, of the new listings are already gone, basically without spending any time on the market. Yeah, I um, think that NAR came out last week and said like the average house is getting five offers on it, like straight across the board. And of yeah. course we know many of those, you know, listings are getting 50 offers on it. I talked with actually our state broker in Texas yesterday. And, and you know, she was telling me that she's spending a, a good deal of time sort of coaching our agents on how do you present 50 offers to a seller, you know, in a fair and equitable way, right? Like, you know, quickly and then help them sift through that. And, and it was a fascinating conversation, but those are the types of realities that agents are, are dealing with. And, and whether you're a seasoned agent or a new agent, that's an interesting, you know, sales dynamic to navigate. Yeah. How do you present if I'm a seller and I've got 50 offers? I did a tweet thread yesterday about with the latest data. And I, and I mentioned some of the anecdotes. Are we, do we have fewer of these? And I had at least two replies that were like, I just did an offer. We had 50, a listing with 50 offers. Another one in New Jersey with 45 like how do you, how, what is, what did she tell you? How do you present that to a seller? Yeah. So the, the advice is, and you're going to love this answer being the data guy that you are at, that you are, you do a spreadsheet. <laughs> so, so yeah, the advice is you literally do a spreadsheet and you just take a row and you put all of, of the information on each offer on that. And one of the, the interesting part of this conversation is that she shared that like she's advising agents to not even put like the buyer's names on the spreadsheet to just make it, you know, contingency price, like just all of the hard facts, because that way then there can be no con unconscious bias that can come into it, right? That it's just, you're just looking at, okay, what makes the most sense? What's the best offer for us? Um, are there patterns that you're seeing that that sellers are opting for that say that's the one out of those 50? What patterns? I mean, obviously money, but like there's a lot of variables. So yeah, it's it's money and timing. And I, I would say a pattern more so that we see is timing. So, you know, what you might think you might default to think, well, a fast close is what every seller wants. It's not necessarily what every seller wants, right? Because a lot of times the seller becomes a buyer and now we reap the benefit of this market as a seller, but now we got to jump into the deep end of the pool as a buyer. And, and that's an interesting you know, pivot to make. So timing can help with that. So maybe I want a longer close for that. Maybe I want a lease back. So I'll, you know, we'll close, but I want to stay in the house another four to six months after that. So we're seeing a lot of those issues around timing, really, I guess, be a pattern, so to speak. Yeah. Do they, when a seller wants a lease back, do they 
did they say that up front or is that come out in the negotiation later on? Both. I mean, in today's market, I mean, some sellers can make like crazy demands, right? Not, not that that is a crazy demand, but yeah, they, they can have their, you know, sort of list, wish list, so to speak of what it is they want. And that will come out in negotiation either way. Yeah. That's so, so wild. So do you, how quickly do you, do you get the sense of things like that? Like if we go from 50 offers or, you know, to five offers, that's a, that's, that will be a notable change, right? It will be a notable change, but will it be a bad change? Well, not for most of us, but the seller might be like, oh, I thought I was going to get 50 and now I only got five. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, but I think as a seller, if I still have five, I mean, remember the days when you put your house on the market, you expected it would be on the market for 90 days and then maybe you'd get an offer. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and now to think that, oh, if I only have five offers, that's somehow disappointing. I mean, I hope that that perspective hasn't gotten to that point. I mean, I think that one of the things that we wonder, right, as we get our crystal balls and we think about what's the market going to look like in, you know, 24 months is, you know, will transactions go down? I mean, we've had record-breaking transaction counts, you know, in 2021. We're now into 2022. What if transaction volume goes down this year? I mean, so far, we're not seeing that, that, you know, is happening. But if it goes down a little bit, like 5%, we're still going to be well above, call it 2019 numbers, which was a strong market. Yeah, that's been a strong market for a decade. Yeah. So even what we, you know, call a softening market or a declining market is still an exceptional market if you look over a, you know, an extended period of time. And, you know, you know, these numbers better than I, I mean, it's going to be a long time before inventory and we can build and replenish the inventory to match the demand. So, so I don't see any bubbles or really bad things happening in our industry in the short term. Do you, speaking of that, so one of the things, the, the bubble things we, that I noticed lived through a few bubbles in my career. Yes. Uh, one of the things that happens is uh, one of the characteristics is like broad or like kind of shady things happening. Not that there would be anything like that in your business. But maybe you run into things like, like, you know, those kind of riskier behaviors that you might see in the market. Do you see any signs of those uh, things, risky things happening, consumers doing dumb things? Like last time around, it was, you know, it was the, the ninja loans where the no income, no whatever. It's like, yeah, and, no loans. Yeah. And, yeah. and I remember, you know, I had a, I had a friends, relatives, a high school teacher in Las Vegas, and you know they owned four homes and they driving BMWs, and I was living in my little, you know, piece of shit Silicon Valley house, and, and you know I was like, what am I doing wrong here? And and then of course it all collapsed, and you know, and then they walked away from. I think they might have kept one of the houses, and they just walked away from three of them. 
And so, and at the time, you know, that was, it, it looked, you know, it looked super risky. It looked, it looked nuts to me. And so and people are buying and doing like, you know, doing, um, they're way overbidding, for example, are there, are there things like that that you see? Like, yeah, I'm not seeing that. And I mean, this is just a very different market than, you know, the REO days and the, you know, the, the default days. I think that what we'll likely see, and, and remember, um, we Fathom owns a mortgage company as well. So we're very connected into to the mortgage world. I think that we will likely see a lot of new mortgage products being offered in the coming years. So, and, and this is just, you know, theory and projection on, on my part, right? We got a lot of homeowners that are locked into very low mortgage interest rates. They may want to move and for the health of the market, we want them to move, but they don't want to lose that interest rate that's locked in in the twos and the threes if rates are much higher. So we may see new mortgage product like, well, can I port my mortgage over to my new house, right? You know, so things like that, I think will start to change as this market evolves with just some different financing options, right? We're seeing fractional own where, you know, I want a second home, but I don't want to own all of it. I'll own an eighth of it or I'll own a 12th of it, or I want to live in two or three addresses across the country. And I don't want to own two or three houses, but I'll own, you know, fractional ownership in two or three houses. So I think that from a demographics perspective and from just a, an ownership perspective, we're going to start to see a different way of how we think about home ownership and how we think about moving from property to property. Awesome. There's a lot there. So let's dive into First, let's talk about the mortgage products. So we haven't even had variable rate mortgage arms in, in you know, seven years right. because rates have been so low. Have you seen, so rates are now like just this month, they're up. Do you have any, like a reading maybe from the mortgage company? Like, oh, we did a few more arms this month. Do you have any sense like that happening? Yeah, no, I, I don't have any sense about that. I mean, on a, on a macro level, right? I mean, we, we know that, you know, refi market has drastically changed for all mortgage companies, ours, you know, included in that. We're seeing some of the big mortgage companies do massive layoffs and, and you know, the news of that comes. So I think that the mortgage industry is changing quickly. And, and that's good, it's related to the, the rates. There was only so many times we could refi something. And that's been kind of the last five years, so to speak. So I think that's a healthy balance as we get our loan officers focused back on the purchase business. And then as that sort of light shines on the purchase business, then we're just going to need more products, right? So more offerings to home buyers and home sellers that encourage them to get out in the market. And, and that's why I think we'll start to see a lot more news about new mortgage products. That'll be fascinating to watch. That'll also be maybe a little scary because, you know, the mortgage products are designed to help people. And then all of a sudden they turn into the things that like make everything collapse, right? <laughs> if they get yeah, too that was in the past. So let's hope we've learned from that on the past, right? So my example of a portable mortgage where I want to sell one, two, three, Apple Lane, but I got a mortgage locked in at, you know, 2.8%. And now my family has grown, whatever has changed. I want to buy 
five, six, seven Cherry Lane, but I still want my two and a half percent mortgage, but this house is worth, you know, one and a half more than this one. If we can make all of that happen, that's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, I suppose it is. Like, uh, yeah, because I, and one of my fears is that, that the, you know, inventory, like as mortgage rates climb, we expect inventory to climb. You expect a uh, few people can't buy the second one and keep the first one. You can't, two mortgages are more expensive now. But then one scenario is that we actually have fewer sellers because nobody wants to get rid of their 2.7% mortgage in a 5%. And, and certainly like, and all those 2.7s are locked in forever. Yes. So I never have to do that. So like, I'm actually afraid, like, what if rates go up and we get fewer homes for sale? But that's where, you know, we, you know, necessity is the mother invention or some saying like that, right? We'll, that's why I think we'll have more mortgage products that will sort of figure that out. And, and by the way, the, the portable mortgage, like when I started selling real estate back in Canada, that was a common thing that you just port your mortgage just ported with you from property to property. So, you know, there is precedent for that sort of thing to happen. And I think that, you know, that could be something that, that we see. I also think that, you know, HELOC mortgages, so tapping into equity, right? Homeowners have built unprecedented equity quickly. So like, let's pull that equity out and what else can we do with it? And that also ties into where I think that fractional ownership can become more and more popular because I can pull out enough equity to buy one eighth of my second home. I might not be able to pull out enough equity and buy a second home or have a full second mortgage, but I want to be in the market and invest in different ways. So it will be interesting to see. It how will be interesting. And, that, and the fractional ownership is cool. Picasso doing the, the one eighth ownership and they're doing high end uh, vacation homes. And actually I'm going to have Austin on the podcast, Austin Allison, who's the CEO Picasso in a couple of weeks. So that'll be, that'll be great to hear and talk about that. Do you, are you working, Fathom working with, with buyer clients who are interested in that kind of thing? Are you doing transactions like that right now? Uh, fractional ownership yeah. uh, transactions? Probably not that I, I'm, you know, aware of. We are certainly educating our agents, you know, on that and what that means. And, and particularly, you know, Picasso has become, you know, very well known in that market. And we're doing the same in terms of having someone from that company sort of do a training, you know, with our agents on that. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something to be educated about. Picasso is now able to put their listings. I mean, they're so new in the market and you can ask Austin about this, that they haven't really had turnover. So the question becomes, if I bought one eighth of a property, but now I want to sell it, how does that work? And they're, they're actually have been working with the MLSs to list that very much like you would a hundred percent owner, you know, listing on an MLS. So I think that, you know, it will just become over the course of time, a, a, you know, a way of ownership. We'll see, you know, a one eighth ownership at a ski lodge in Tahoe on the MLS and on Zillow and realtor.com and all those other places. That's, that'll be really interesting. And that actually fits in with the, the other big trend of the last couple of years is the remote work trend. Right. And you allude, that's another thing that you alluded to in, um, when you're talking about the future. So tell me what you think about that trend, about that trend now and in the future and, and how you talk to your agents and, and consumers about that. 
So, so I'm a fan of that trend. <laughs> so Fathom Realty was founded as a virtual brokerage. We have been virtual for the last decade. We've, we've liked to joke over the last two years that uh, we were virtual before it was cool. <laughs> so, you know, if we go back to March of 2020, when the world went into lockdown, as tragic as that was, and as, as frightening as that was for everyone from a business operational perspective, we didn't skip a beat because we've always communicated like this with our agents. We've always had the technology in place that we could do closings from anywhere and we could process a file from you know, anywhere because it's all done in the cloud and all done online. So we didn't go through the same fear of, oh no, I got a closing and all the files are in the office and the doors are locked and it can't get in. <laughs> So I, I guess we were early adopters of a virtual workforce. That's great. So your, are your closings entirely virtual? Are they entirely? As long as the state and the title or the attorney and everything can do that. But yeah, from the part that we need to do as the brokerage, yes, it's completely electronic. Our agents upload their files into our transaction management system, which is a proprietary system that we developed and, and we owned. We manage through that file, do compliance, and then pay the agents out immediately. If we can pay them at the closing table, they're paid right you know, at the closing. And if not, they're paid via direct deposit or e-check immediately thereafter. That's that's really cool. And there's so it's it's like finally we're getting to actually, you know, like yeah. I expected it to be 20 years ago that we would have been really. Oh, and I think that that's, that's one of the amazing things about the ecosystem that we have within Fathom is one of the breakdowns typically in a transaction is, yeah, I've got an accepted offer with the real estate agent over here, but now we got to get all the information to our loan officer. And yeah, we've got to get it over to title and they've all got to talk and they've all got to talk when they're supposed to talk and not necessarily on their own uh, timeframe. And that causes a lot of anxiety, a lot of miscommunication, and sometimes even a lot of missed deadlines, right? In the whole sort of, you know, pipeline of closing the transaction. So one of the benefits and one of the things that we, you know, are working on very diligently here at Fathom is creating that frictionless transaction. So for our agents, they have a team of service providers that they work with through our Fathom brands. We have our Encompass Lending, which is our mortgage company, and Veris Title, which is our title company, Dagley Insurance, which is our insurance company all of those are seamlessly talking to each other so that so you're not only working with you know wendy the real estate agent but you're working with my extended team and our systems are all connected so that when we're uploading the transaction well our loan officer is automatically getting it and as contingency dates are flowing back and forth that information is automatically getting updated oh did you know you're going to need property insurance and house insurance on your new property, which is typically one of those 11th hour things where the, you know, the loan officer or the processor is calling you up and saying, I need proof of your insurance. And you're like, oh shoot, I forgot. Okay, who do I got to call? Well, we're proactively able to deal with that as soon as the file opens. So, so there's, you know, dynamics like that, that are just changing. And 
I, I always hesitate to use the, you know, revolutionalizing, disrupting. I'm, I'm not a big fan of those buzzwords, but, you know, we have put into place the dynamics to create a better experience for everybody involved in the transaction. And that is what the modern brokerage needs to do. And does that, does that have tangible benefits to the like buyer and seller? Do they like, do they get the deal done faster or you fewer fall out of contract? What happens there? They, they have tangible customer service benefits for sure. So one of the biggest complaints um, from the customer is the lack of visibility. You know, once you get an accepted offer and then once you, you know, are working with your loan officer, you know, what happens, right? Like there's that kind of black box of, I kind of think people are doing something. I don't know. They keep sending me emails telling me they need more information, but then what happens to it? Like, you know, probably one of the scariest parts of the whole, there's probably two really scary parts of the whole home buying. It's, I wrote an offer and now I'm waiting to hear if it got accepted, right? Like there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of nervous energy that goes into that. And then the loan officer telling me that, okay, I've sent it over to underwriting. We're waiting to hear back, right? Of like, okay, is there going to be a problem? What if they say no? Like those two moments, like in the transaction are high, high stress. So, you know, alleviating that and communicating and giving visibility is something we've talked about as an industry for a long time. And having those service team partners that really do work together and are under that same umbrella is super helpful at alleviating that. That's great. That's super, super cool. Yeah, that, that constant communication. I know when I bought the last house, I bought my, my mountain house that, that, you know, I mean, like I'm applying for mortgage, but I own the company. And so it's not standard. And like, I have no idea what's happening. Right, I, right. And, and you're, a, I mean, you're in the industry, right? Yeah, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> yes. um, so that's real life, right? Imagine being a first time buyer or somebody that hasn't bought a home for a decade. Like that is part of what our industry faces is despite all the technology and despite all of the knowledge that is out there we've not done a really good job at improving, you know, this transaction and, and this experience of buying or selling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome that you're working on that. You mentioned first-time homebuyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, first-time homebuyers is something that I'm particularly interested in. They've been, you know, they've been squeezed out of the market by, you know, people with more cash. Do you have opinions on first-time home buyers? Like, where is it going? Are we uh, getting, is it going to get better for them? Anything like that that we should know about? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know I wouldn't want to be a first-time home buyer again. <laughs> you know, I, I feel for those individuals. I would say that I a thousand percent believe in home ownership and the investment of home ownership. So, I hope that, you know, our first time home buyers out there, you know, look at the facts because the facts will support you can't go wrong by investing, you know, in a home. And despite the challenges of getting in the market right now, I hope they hang in there. I think we will because I think that, you know, despite demographic changes and, you know, all of those things, 
we still have this, I think, pride of ownership. And we still have a, this is my safe space of I own my home, right? Like this is it's not renting. It's not a landlord's like, I think that that sort of human instinct will, will keep the first time home buyers active in the market. Yeah, I think it will too. I, I have a hypothesis about why Americans feel so strongly about home ownership and that that's uh, we don't have, we've, compared to mo most of the world, we have so little sa social safety net that like that home ownership is like, at least I've got my house. Right, kind of yeah. Yeah, everything else, I don't know, but I can go home behind that door and that's my house. That's my safe space. That doesn't seem likely to change. But what's tricky though is so now we've got, we have so many uh, Americans who own multiple places, own rentals and, and moved from one and didn't sell the first one and bought the second one and keep the first one for the investment property. That inventory has been falling for a decade. And have you thought about like, like, that's obviously a good thing for those people who own the investment properties too. What, what do you think about, like, tell me about what you think about that dynamic and, and where we are and maybe where it's going or what you think we should do about it. Yeah. Remember back when, you know, we all sort of got into the real estate market and, you know, I think there's like a famous Warren, Warren Buffett quote that's like, always buy real estate, never sell it. So I think that from an investment property standpoint, if you own investment properties right now, like hang on to them, right? Because <laughs> they're, they're going to, you know, they have paid off as great investments and will likely continue to do so. I think the flip side of that coin, going back to the conversation about first-time homebuyers, is what we may see is first-time homebuyers delaying that purchase because of, you know, affordability or inventory issues where, you know, I want to buy now, but I'm going to wait another two years so I can save up some more money. Hopefully there will be some inventory. Maybe it's new construction and I'm on the list to have my house built in, you know, 16 months from now. So I'm, you know, I got to wait till then. So I think we'll start to see some of those dynamics become, you know, more prevalent and enough time will go by that we can get some of the data uh, points to, to really sort of validate some of those theories. Yeah, I, one of the, the set of anecdotes that I'm hearing, and this is a lot of firsthand stuff that I'm hearing, is, is people who are, they have cash, they want to buy, but they are waiting for the market to either at least slow down, but a lot of them are hoping, hoping for like some kind of bubble burst that they can swoop in with their cash. Yeah. Uh, have you, are you I hearing that? Also? I'm hearing that. I mean, yes, we, our agents tell us that they hear that from buyers all the time. I mean, and, and I tell all of them, like, I don't think we're going to get a bubble burst. And those people that are saying that they probably said that 12 months ago. Right. And they were like, oh, well, we want the market to go down. Well, okay, well, if the market goes down 10%, would you then get in the market? Oh, yeah, yeah, I would get in the market if it went down 10%. Well, then you should have got in the market 12 months ago, right? Because we've had, the market has escalated. We've had house price appreciation in excess of 10% in the last 12 months. So, you know, sitting on the sidelines, I, I don't get, get in there, right? Like, just get in there. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I um. 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so uh, confident that I can say get in there. But, <laughs> but I do. I, I, the way I say it is like, look, if you can afford the house, and you like the house, buy the house. If you can't afford it, or you don't like it, don't buy it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. buy it because you think you got to get in. Like you have to. Yeah. And when I say get in there, I mean I wouldn't recommend that if you couldn't afford it or it's beyond your, you know, comfort level, sort of financially. Uh, yeah, but if, if you can afford it and you like the house, then I would say get in there. Like, don't sit on the sidelines hoping that the market's going to go down. And and then, you know, if that's your hope, then I think you got to do some math. If it goes down, what, like, what's the cost of waiting, right? Like, that is the, the classic analogy that we do, right? Is if I wait 12 months, how much is that going to cost me? And then how much does the market need to go down in order to cover that cost? And when you start mapping that out and putting some numbers to that, it tends to go back to, okay, I should try to buy something now if I can afford it. Which is what people are doing. Like a lot of, there are plenty of people waiting and like, how long are you going to wait? But there's also, there's lots of people buying who are saying, you know what, it makes sense to buy right now and I'm going to buy right now. Well, just think if you've been waiting the last two years, like at the beginning of the pandemic, if you were looking to buy and the pandemic hit and you said, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to wait. How much would that have cost you? Yeah. Right. Just in the difference of your interest rate on your mortgage and then in the house price appreciation and then in the cost of living in the last 24 months, whether it's rent or, or whatever, right, that you paid, like it would have cost you a substantial amount of money to wait. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and it, it's always, always fascinating, especially in, in the social media and the Twitter world. Like I have a whole bunch of people who are just, you know, every time I post some data, we expect market crashing and here's why the market's going to crash and I can't wait till the market crashes and then of course I'm guilty because I'm somehow talking up the market even though I'm just trying to report the facts so okay let's talk a little bit about data for a sec you at Fathom have have a tech company that does some data tell me what what you do and what you like to present in that local market data that you guys have at Fathom yeah so one of the companies in the Fathom Holdings brand is a company called Live By. So LiveBy focuses on uh, hyper-local market data. So they provide, or we provide, uh, very localized market data on what's happening in an area. So let me level set what that means. So typically, when we talk about local market, we tend to think at a zip code level. Well, a zip code level is not a local market in most areas. So, so take where I live. I live in Irvine, California. If you look at the zip code 92612 of Irvine, California, you've got a wide swing of you know, micro markets within that zip code. If I'm a buyer, I may want to be in a specific area. So knowing a hyper-local area of Irvine, like North Park or Park Place, there are different market conditions within those two hyperlocal markets. So at Live By, we drill down to that hyperlocal market level so that as a buyer, I can get down to like in that hyperlocal market, what are not only the market conditions, but what's it like to live there? What is the shopping? What are the schools? What are the restaurants? Like all of those things. And, and you're able to get reports on, on our websites where you can get 
mar local market reports to help you in your buying and selling decisions. Yeah, there's all kinds of interesting nuances of of data that are that are beyond the the you know home prices and time to sell and things like that. And and some of it is let me ask you this way: is like are there parts of those things like like walk score type things that that people uh, find most compelling? Like are there things that like people you go oh that really helped me make a decision over you know yeah. this side of town versus that side of town? It I mean, yes, in some cases, right? I mean, it's very personal to, you know, the buyer themselves on, on what they're looking for. But definitely we have, I'll, I'll tease something that is is hot off the presses. So, so we haven't released this yet, but we've just done a, a study that internally the project name, we've been calling it Howdy Neighbor. So we did a, a study on, do you like, on neighbors. And, and what we're really trying to find out is, do Americans actually like their neighbors? And does that relationship impact their decision on buying or selling? And, and I, I can't do it with a spoiler alert, alert on it. So maybe I can come back and I can tell you about it. But it's fascinating to kind of see that. So it ties into the kind of the hyper-local element. And particularly, I think, going through the pandemic and you know, spending so much more time in our homes that neighbor to the right, to the left, across the street, we interacted with them probably differently than we ever did before. So, so one of the things that we were curious about is, well, how do we feel about those neighbors? And the next time we buy, will we think about the neighbors? Will we want to try to meet them? Will we ask the current owner about their relationship with the neighbors? Will we drive by and sort of spy on the neighbors to see what's happening if we're interested in a house? And uh, we had some fascinating things that came back from that, that survey. That's cool. So you you surveyed like Fathom clients? No, we did. We did an omnibus. We hired a, a third party a survey company that just went out and surveyed people. Um, you like so your neighbors. I like it. That's really cool. I can't wait for those results. You know, relevant survey on opinions. I love it. That's really fascinating. It reminds me of the, there's a, a survey on schools. So you know, Americans report that that the the school systems are a wreck and they they need overhaul and all these things are wrong. And then you ask them about their school system, mm -hmm. and their schools are always good. So Americans report say they say my schools are good. everybody else's schools are lousy, and it's like but, but mine are good. And so it's like we have this impression of of like how how the 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 you know, the world is out there. But when we actually ask from our experience, we're pretty happy. Yes. Um, it'd be interesting go, to see. Let me go back to the, the live by guys for a second. So one of the other things that we do from a data perspective, and we're just releasing this as well, is, is we analyze, live by analyze brokerage websites across the country. So all brokerage company websites. And one of the things that brokers and agents often say is that we are the local market experts, right? Like you see that tagline, you see that phrase all the time. Well, we wanted to see, okay, show us your local market expertise. 
So we actually, um, you know, did an algorithm and ranked the, the websites on their local market data that they have on the website and gave them a score. So there's a website ranking score. So if you go to liveby.com, you can actually type in your website address and it will give you your website score. So, you know, that that hyper local perspective is so important out there in the marketplace and and shifting how we in the business think about what hyper local means and what local market means is a huge opportunity that that we have and just the ability to have all that data is one thing but then how agents use that data to service their clients is where the big opportunity lies yes for sure that's terrific i love it well that's really great let's let's we're getting close to the the top of our hour here are there let me ask one more question and then we'll wrap up are there other things that like along the line of the you know local expert are there things that the that the really great agents and teams are doing right now that that we should be paying attention to like things working yes so the, my answer to this is going to seem like kind of a general answer but great teams and agents are doing this and that is they are not forgetting about tomorrow so they're building their businesses today for tomorrow and what I mean by that is it's very easy in this market to get super transactional. We've got this transaction done, moving on to the next one. The great agents and teams are building their sphere of influence. They're building their database. They're continuing to provide information of value. They are continuing to be that resource of value. And, and that will help them as the market does shift and change. And I'll give you a real life example. About a month ago, and I do this often, this was the first time I had done it sort of coming out of COVID. So the open houses made a comeback, by the way, right? We thought that open houses might die, you know, during COVID, but open houses are back across the country and in full force. So I went to four open houses on a Sunday afternoon. I was secret shopping. So in and around my local market, just pull up to the driveway, open house sign, walk in. Four different agents, four different companies, none of which were Fathom, I will say. Not one agent asked me to sign in, asked me my name, asked me any qualifying questions. If I was looking to buy, working with an agent, lived in the area, nothing. Not one agent even so much as gave me their business card. There were there were other people walking in and out of these open houses. Every open house had at least one or two other, you know, people or couples in them while I was there. Same thing I observed when other people entered or left. I didn't even get a listing flyer at either of the four. So here are four agents taking the time to do an open house. They've got literally probably dozens of people in their open house throughout the course of a Sunday afternoon. And they did nothing to build their database, create a relationship, and or even protect their sellers, right, of the, the owners of the home they were doing. So that's really discouraging for our industry, right? We can do better than that on so many levels. So great agents are not doing that, right? They're still making the effort. They're still thinking, okay, Mike, you may not be the buyer today. I'm probably going to get 15 offers on this house by tomorrow. You're not going to be one of them. 
but a year from now, or you may have a friend or two years from now, there's going to be an opportunity there. And, and that's what we need to think is we need to be thinking about the business long-term. That's amazing. That's a great way to, to end it. How can listeners find you? Where should they follow you? Socials, that kind of thing. Yep. You can find me on all the socials at brand Wendy and, and Wendy. the best way to get me is wendyforsight.com. Awesome. And we'll provide links and all that in the show notes. Wendy, thank you so much for, for being with us. And I really appreciate your insight. And we will, we will uh, publish this in a couple of weeks and, and talk to you all then. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you, everybody. This is Top of Mind Podcast. And we will be back uh, next week with another one. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.